Hey, 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 it's Coach Mark here of the Everyday Fitness with Coach Mark podcast. And in today's episode, I have a real superstar of the fitness and nutrition field. Her name is JJ Virgin. And JJ is a prominent TV and media personality whose previous features include co-host of the TLC's Freaky Eaters, two years as the on-camera nutritionist for weight loss challenges on Dr. Phil, and numerous appearances on PBS, The Dr. Oz Show, Rachel Bay, Access Hollywood, and The Today Show. She also speaks regularly and has shared the stage with notables, including Seth Godin, Lisa Nichols, Gary Vee, Mark Hyman, Dan Brittner, and Mary Morsi. JJ is the author of four New York Times bestsellers, The Virgin Diet, The Virgin Diet Cookbook, JJ Virgin's Sugar Impact Diet, and JJ Virgin's Sugar Impact Diet Cookbook. Her latest book, Warrior Mom, Seven Secrets to Bold, Brave Resilience, shows caregivers everywhere how to be strong, positive leaders to, for their families, while exploring the inspirational lessons JJ learned as she fought for her own son's life. JJ hosts the popular Ask the Health Expert podcast with over 8 million downloads and growing. She also regularly writes for Rodel Wellness, Mind Body Green, and other major blogs and magazines. JJ is also a business coach and founded the premier health entrepreneur event and community, the Mindshare Summit. And today we're going to talk about food intolerances. What are they and how we, how can we can get rid of them and how we can deal with them to live a better life. Let's dive in. Hey, JJ, welcome to the Everyday Fitness with Coach Mark podcast. It's good to be here, Coach Mark. Thank you for coming on. And yeah, we're going right away. Um, listeners heard it in the intro. Um, they, they heard who you are, but I want to know it from you. Who is JJ? Who is JJ Virgin? Uh, give us a little bit of a breakdown. Who is JJ Virgin? My gosh. Um, yes, it's always interesting to talk about yourself in third person, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say I am a lifelong learner, uh, kind of serial entrepreneur, mom, most importantly, I'm sure you get that, right? That always is the, the top most important thing. And I've always been like literally from the age of 12, obsessed with uh, wellness, with nutrition and fitness, like off to the health food stores when I was 12, using my allowance to buy, you know, carob and things like that. And, um, I was always working out, I was working out back, back then there were no gyms and I was working out with mm. the football team at the high school gym with all the dudes. So this has been a lifelong thing. And, um, I was just fortunate to be able to build a career around what I loved. Yeah. And you're an icon in the fitness and health industry, um, how so so you said uh, it started really early on what was like one of the things that you remember where you said okay that's what i want to do because for me um playing soccer professionally for example i always was in this active field inspired by athletes inspired by uh training and uh, what was something that you already uh, think back what is something that you can uh, mention yeah, I never actually planned it. So in high school, I wanted to be a theater actress. I was at a place called American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. And then I was taking dance and voice and my dance teacher, I ran out of like kind of ran out of stuff to learn. So she had me teach. And then she also had me teach way back then calisthenics. Um, and 
I was catering as well. And then I went off to college and I, the theater department at UCLA was not, not anything compared to what I'd been at. So I was not very thrilled with it, but I started teaching aerobics. And so I started teaching aerobics and then someone wanted me to come to their house and train them. There were no personal trainers back then. Next thing I know I'm in college and I have like, I'm working part-time as a personal trainer, making more than most people make when they graduated from college. Right. Mm-hmm. So I decided I better start studying exercise science and nutrition. And by the time I graduated from college, I had a full blown six figure, and this was back in the eighties mm-hmm. business and then went on to grad school. So it just kind of happened. Like I never planned it. And what's crazy when you think about it is I went to college on a theater scholarship. I ended up dropping out of that and becoming an English major. I then catered my way. My other job in college was to do catering. And so I was catering and trying to do healthy catering. I started a couple healthy catering companies and did my personal training, owned a gym. And then I started doing TV to promote the gym. And then all of a sudden you look back and go, all these things that you do, right? That don't seem to make any sense. It's like, what, like, what is this weird path that's no straight line? And you look and go, gosh, the TV, the theater, the writing, the cooking, and the exercise all like they all came together into a career. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it, it aligned, it aligned perfectly um, to, to now, right? Yeah. In um, retrospect, it, it aligned perfectly. I look like a genius, but at the time it looked like I was, like, <laughs> you know, dropping the ball and picking it up and dropping the ball. Right. Exactly. Um, and I want to dive right into um, your books. You're a bestselling author. Uh, you, you, re- you wrote so many books. Um Give us a little bit of the breakdown about the books. Um, what are their names and uh, what are the topics in the books? So my first published book is one that most people have never heard. And I was at a marketing event and um, someone asked me how I got my arms. And I, and I started to think about it and I go, you know, I should do a program around this. And I had a manager at the time and he sent over a proposal writer and we wrote a proposal literally that afternoon. And then I went to New York with him and we sold the book the next week to Simon and Schuster. However, I didn't know anything about how to promote a book. So that was my first book. It's been in probably, I don't know, 15 reprints because they print like hundred at a time, you know? (laughs) So, but (laughs) what was great about that was I really learned what it takes to write a book, um, you know, how much time it takes to do a book. And when I got ready to do the next book and I was, I was on a reality show called Freaky Eaters and my co-star had this amazing agent and had gotten this big book advance. And I'm like, how did you do that? So he introduced mm-hmm. me to this agent and I had this idea of a book I wanted to write because I was teaching a course to doctors called Overcoming Weight Loss Resistance. And it was all these things that can damage your metabolism and what you need to do to heal them. Mm-hmm. And so um, at that point, I like, I'm telling her this and she goes, no, no, what you should do. There was one part of it. It was called, it was food intolerance. She goes, just write a book on that. And I go, no, I want to write a book on all of that. She goes, no, just focus, (laughs) narrow that niche to that one thing. And so I say the biggest, biggest reason I can, I am successful. I'm where I'm at is that I'm super coachable. I always find the best person. Like I have the best agent and I actually listen to them and do what they say. So I listened and we did that book. That book became The Virgin Diet, Drop Seven Foods, Lose Seven Pounds, Just Seven Days. 
massive, like on the New York Times for 26 weeks, um, you know, we did a public television show that started my Virgin Diet Cookbook. And then everyone was asking about sugar. So I created a new way to look at sugar called the Sugar Impact Diet. And then the Sugar Impact Diet Cookbook. Um, so, and then along the way, like as the Virgin Diet was coming out, my 16 year old son was crossing the street at dusk and got hit by a car and literally left for dead in the street. And what people don't know about the Virgin Diet is it was literally, I worked on that book launch and launched a New York Times bestseller, Bedside with My Son in a Coma. And, you know, they say if you want to take the island, you need to burn all the boats. Well, mm. I knew that in order to save my son's life, that book had to be really successful because it was going to pay for all of his medical bills. And so like I was motivated before, well, I was hyper-motivated at that point. So I wrote the book Warrior Mom to talk about the mindset that it took to be able to get so, stay so on task, stay so focused to be able to help save my son's life and um, do that in the process. So that's, that's my other book. And then uh, right now I'm working on the Virgin anti-diet coming out November, Virgin 2022. Anti-diet. I like it. I like it. I like it. Um, that's my agent to, um, again. <laughs> yep. Really good age, <laughs> I must mm-hmm. say. Um, let's talk about the sugar impact diet. Um, you're talking about the glycemic index and what is wrong with it. Do you, can you explain that a little bit deeper? Um, yeah, give us a little bit of uh, like a, like an input on, on that. All right. So it was very interesting. You know, um, when I wrote The Virgin Diet, at first it was Drop Six Foods. So the title is Drop Seven Foods, Lose Seven Pounds, Just Seven Days. Well, when I first started doing mm. that program, it was drop six foods. I'm glad I figured out the seventh because it sounds way better, right? Six foods, exactly. six days. It just doesn't look good. Um, but at first I didn't pull sugar out. And what I discovered is as I was telling people to pull these foods out, they would just go over and eat sugar. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know? And it never dawned on me because I don't really, I'm not a big sugar person. Like I could take it or leave it. The biggest question I got asked as I wrote that book was, you know, I can't quit sugar or I'm eating honey. It's all natural. Surely it's healthy. Or I'm having Splenda and there's no calories. And I was like, wow, this is, people are confused by this. And it was, it seems like people were either confused or they just were controlled. Like they were either an addict, you know, sugar being their number one recreational drug of choice uh, to quote Dr. Mark Hyman, or they just were confused. And so that's why I decided you know, this next book needs about sugar, but I really felt like we'd been looking at sugar all wrong. And a lot of that is because of the glycemic index. Now the glycemic index was a great start, but then we have to look further because what the glycemic index does is it looks at a 50 gram dose of, of carbohydrate and then your blood sugar response to it. Challenge is we don't eat that way. Like we don't sit there. We're totally, you know, fasting. And then we're going to sit down and eat, uh, you know, 50 grams of carrots and then wait, eat them in isolation and then see that response, right? We might sit down and eat a bag of chips, but most of us aren't doing the carrots, the broccoli, et cetera. We tend to exactly. eat foods in combination. And the bigger challenge is not only is it not looking at what we do in real life, but also there are certain foods, certain, a specific type of sugar that doesn't raise blood sugar because it's metabolized by the liver. So you eat it 
It goes straight to the liver, the only organ that can metabolize it. And if it can't be converted to glucose and stored as glycogen, it's turned into fat. And just assume that it is because there's not a lot of storage space in the liver. And so you're eating fructose, it's making fat. And it's also messing up your insulin because it's not raising blood sugar because it's not raising blood sugar. It's not triggering satiety signals either. And it's a very, um, aging sugar. It glycates seven times more than other sugars. It's more dangerous for feeding cancers, and it also can make your gut leakier. So it's just a very problematic thing. Well, the challenge with the glycemic index is because fructose doesn't raise blood sugar, it looks like it's great. And in fact, they were using it with diabetes for years saying, no, you know, low on the glycemic index. But the problem is it can create hypertension. It can raise, create insulin resistance. It's an easy way to take a lab rat and make a lab rat hypertensive. And so that, that was my issue was like, gosh, you know, it's not about eating no sugar. It's about knowing which to choose and which to lose all carbohydrates, except for fiber turn to sugar. It's really about avoiding the ones that your body just, you know, main lines versus making slowly into sugar. There's a big difference between broccoli or legumes versus, you know, a candy bar. So I wanted to re really reevaluate the way we look at sugar, get off the glycemic index, pull in, still use it, but also pull in insulin. How much does this food impact our insulin? So we'd have to look at artificial sweeteners that may not raise blood sugar. However, they change your gut microbiome. So you become more glucose intolerant. We'd have to look at fructose that can make you insulin resistant. So I looked at the bad things that can happen from sugar in terms of insulin and glucose and gut microbiome. And I contrasted them with what you want to get out of foods, the phytonutrients and the fiber. And I created a new index called the sugar impact index. And I rated foods red, green, and yellow, which I must tell you was a gigantic pain in the butt to do. Cause I went through them all. And I was like looking at fructose levels, looking at insulin index, looking at glycemic index, looking at fiber, looking at phytonutrients and Oh my gosh. Right. And making this, a lot of research. Making this chart. <laughs> and then you've got like, okay, there's a big difference between a barely ripe banana and an overly ripe banana. Right. Big I mean, difference. there's a big difference between a grape big difference or a raisin or grape juice. So <laughs> absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. And what, what would you say? Let's say um, we have sugar as the enemy number one in in our health, right? Um, what is like a good substitute to to that? Uh, you, you said, okay, there's the, the foods that are on the green side, there's more the yellow side, more the red side. Um, let's talk about the, the difference between those. Um, you don't have to list all of them, obviously, but maybe mm -hmm. give us one or two examples. I have built my whole, all of my plans, because again, coming out with virgin anti-diet, the real thing is that you know, if you say, okay, don't eat that, but people immediately go, well, what, you know, they could substitute with something worse. Right. So I always look at mm -hmm. how can we swap out? What can we do to trade out? So, you know, in sugar impact diet, let's say that you were eating potato chips. That would be a mm -hmm. red sugar impact food. Well, you could make your own baked potato chips, but just by slicing them, right. And then cooking sure. them and then letting them cool. So you've elevated the resistant starch now you've got a medium sugar impact food. So how can we start to swap similar things? If you are using a, a sugar, mm -hmm. um, let's say that you're using something really rotten, like just a table sugar, you could do better by switching to a raw honey or blackstrap molasses mm -hmm. or coconut yeah. sugar, but you do even better if you switch to something like allulose or monk fruit, right? Or stevia. 
So I just went through the list and went, how can we easily swap down, you know, like fruits, a great example, let's say you're doing dried fruit, which is candy, Mm -hmm. you know, let's say that you're doing um, raisins, raisins are high sugar impact, grapes, medium sugar impact, they still have a lot of sugar, Mm -hmm. blueberries, more fiber, less sugar, low sugar impact. So how do we just go through and start to swap it down? And what's cool is, I mean, sugar, like if you look at sugar and all the major diseases from heart disease to um, diabetes, to cancer, to osteoporosis, to dementia, do you know if your blood sugar is just like slightly higher than normal, like 90 you have 5X the increased risk in dementia. So you look at sugar, one of the simplest things that you can do that has the biggest effect in your health. And I always like that little hinges swing big doors is just to lower that sugar impact. And the cool thing is so many of these things that we do as swaps, like going from white pasta to rice pasta to like spaghetti squash, right. Is not that big of a deal. I guess once you start to do it, you're like, Oh, I just didn't even know about this food. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. Tastes almost the same too. (laughs) Um, yeah, so let, let's go from sugar impact diet to divergent diet. Um, you're talking about food intolerances and how they could impact your body. And I'm not just saying with weight gain, I'm talking about um, yeah, diseases, pain, and so on and so forth. Um, maybe explain what a food intolerance is first and how it really impacts the body. Yes. And this is what the virgin diet and the virgin anti-diet are written around. So here's, here's how this all happened. I was teaching doctors how to do different types of functional tests in their office. One of the tests I was using was a food sensitivity test. This looked at something called an IgG4, and it, it looked at an antibody that your body would, would push out if it was reacting to a food and it would either be, you know, there's no response, low, medium, high. And so people would come into the office to do this test. And the test took about three weeks to come back. They'd come in, it was a little simple blood spot complaining of gas and bloating, joint pain, headaches, fatigue, skin problems, And, you know, they'd have autoimmune disease flare-ups, they had belly fat, they had cravings, they couldn't lose weight. These were all the things we were hearing. We would run the test. And and honestly, at first I was just running the test because it would help people get more compliant on their diet. So you'd run the test and we'd wait three weeks and the test would come back. And I, you know, I had the chance to look at hundreds of these tests and I started to notice that it was always the same food showing up. Dairy and eggs were always the top. And then soy, corn, and peanuts were the next level. Gluten's a different type of test that we would run. So we would run, you know, you have celiac, you have gluten intolerance, gluten sensitivity, different tests. About 40% of people were showing up with that. However, gluten can create these food sensitivities, these reactions, because what, what those reactions were showing, if you saw, you know, eggs and dairy, soy, corn, peanuts, they were showing that your gut had become more permeable than it should be. Well, your gut becomes more permeable than it should be. And, and if you're not digesting well, your stomach acids low, you're not chewing well, you're rushing your meals, you're drinking a lot of fluid with your meals, food gets into circulation where it shouldn't be. You're eating, eating the same things every day. If you're like everybody else, and you're probably getting in, if you're not really watching yourself and you're eating dirty processed foods, gluten, dairy, corn, eggs, soy, peanuts, sugar, artificial sweeteners, they're in everything. And so if you were just eating it every once in a while and your body was responding, it would be no big deal. Your body would take the antibodies, grab a hold of that protein, 
glob it together. It becomes an immune complex. Macrophages eat it up. It goes. But if you're eating it all the time, these things build up and they create symptoms. And depending on where they build up, depends on whether you get the gas and bloating or the joint pain or the headaches, the fatigue or the skin problems, et cetera. Gluten makes your gut leakier by causing the release of something called zonulin. Fructose makes your gut leakier. But the biggest thing that makes your gut leakier, and you can know now why this is such a problem, is stress. Mm. Like stress is such a massive thing. So you think about like what happened over this past year when there was so much stress and then people were going, I was watching what, like they were doing reports on what people were buying to eat at home, like their survival food. I'm like, oh no, this is going to be really, really bad. So what I started to notice, you know, same foods kept showing up and people would come and take the test and wait three weeks. And I thought, you know, I could just put them on the diet, pull these foods out for the next three weeks. And then at least we're further ahead when they come back in. And then if they can add something in, they'll add something in. What would happen was they'd come back after three weeks feeling so much better. Like within the first couple of days, they started to feel so much better. And what I started to see was the average person was losing seven pounds in the first week, like because of the inflammation, all the bloating, crazy. Um, So they come back in. And finally, what I started to realize was we actually didn't need to do the test at all, that we could take Mm. them off for three weeks, pull all those foods out, and then go back and one by one, re-challenge each food and see, let them be their own nutritionists. They've now done this reset and little detox where they've kind of like cleared everything out so they can really listen to their body. You know, we talk about intuitive eating. Well, intuitive eating, if you're eating a lot of dirty processed foods, doesn't work because you're addicted to the gluten and the dairy. You can't hear. But once you've cleared all these things out, you've let that immune response die down. You start to feel what really feeling normal really feels like. Your intuitive GPS is now kicked up. You can be your own nutritionist and go, wow, I eat gluten and my fingers swell. That's not going to work for me. I eat dairy. I'm bloated and mucusy and my skin breaks out, you know, so you can connect the dots and really figure out which foods work for you and which foods don't. And then if you need to do a food sensitivity test for outliers, you can, but my gosh, you know, most people don't ever need to do that. And they've really taken their health into their own hands. Right. Yeah. How does it look like? So let's say there's a person who is food intolerant to all of those foods, right? Does your diet, um, how does the diet look like? How many meals are there? Um, what are the foods that they're eating? Um, just explain a little bit about that. Sure. It's so funny because people are like, there's nothing to eat. When I first did this, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, the first thing was, what can I eat? And I go, hey, if you've been eating all those foods, this is going to be really amazing for you. So first of all, celebrate that. When we pull these foods out, generally the foods that have been hurting you, you're going to crave for the first couple of days. That's a sign. So that's a good thing. Mm. Here's the thing. There's so many foods when you look at it that you can eat. Now, 10 years ago, when I first did this, it was harder, but nowadays look at all the non-dairy alternatives for milks, for cheeses. It's crazy. Look at all the non-gluten alternatives for pastas, the non-corn alternatives for chips and tortillas. So there's tons of things and, and they're what I'll call clean processed. You know, not everything that says gluten-free is clean process. There's a lot of junk food out there and you have to be careful. Um, but there are so many great options, but I teach people to start the day with a smoothie. Now, years and years ago, I was a stickler for three meals a day. Um, the first thing I have people do is pull out their snacks because if you're eating 
you're raising blood sugar and you're raising insulin and you're not burning fat. So the first thing that I teach people to do is eat by the plate. And this is whether you're having a smoothie or you're having um, a plate of food, you always have clean protein, healthy fats and fiber from lots of non-starchy vegetables and some slow load carbs because the protein super thermic, it works with fiber to slow down stomach emptying and balance blood sugar and keep you full longer. And then the fat triggers the release of some neuropeptides tells the brain that you're full. So that all works together for blood sugar balance, uh, satiety and, and thermogenesis. Next thing is that I have people stop eating at least three to four hours before bed and not go to bed later. <laughs> That's mm. important, important thing, not go to bed later. And if you're hungry at night, have a glass of water. Great study showed that that shut down hundred percent of people's hunger pangs at night. Um, and if you're eating by the plate, that shouldn't happen anyway. Usually we're hungry at night. We're not hungry. We're bored. So that's the first step is I have people eat by the plate, get a lot of water in between meals or ice cream tea or black coffee um, early in the day. And then I start having you push breakfast a bit. Um, mm -hmm. because ideally when you're going through a program, I like you to move into doing cycling of meals where some days you're doing two meals and more of a shortened mm -hmm. feeding window. And some meals you're doing three meals. The reason being is I want you to cycle your calories and I want you to, um, not like if you, all you did was intermittent fast and really lower your calories every single day, do two meals a day and drop your calories, your body will downshift your metabolism will downshift to accommodate. But if we can do it so that, some days you're eating breakfast, say at 10 and dinner at seven. Some days you're eating breakfast at 11 and, and dinner at five and you're skipping your lunch. You know, you're just having more of a brunch and dinner. That's how I like to move things. I find for most people, they do better with a kind of more of a brunchy thing, 10, 11 mm. and an early dinner. Um, what I see with some of the intermittent fasting is they're pushing dinner too late. And I do not like late dinners and going to bed because I want to yeah. make sure if you're eating before you're going to bed, you're going to have trouble raising growth hormone, which is what you want to be raising while you're sleeping for healing, for rejuvenation, for building muscle. So that's why you really want to stop eating three to four hours before bed. I mean, to me, the perfect eating window is like 10 to 11 in the morning, get up, meditate, fasted workout, eat, and then having an early dinner, take a walk after dinner. That would be like perfect world. And some days it might be like you're eating at 10, two and seven. And some days it might be that you're eating at 11 and five and you're just rotating this. Got it. Um, there's always like, I feel like people that obviously, and that's most of them um, work in an office. They don't have that much activity level throughout the day when they work. Right. Um, and there's people that work really active jobs. What would you say to a person that is really active compared to a person that is not really active and more sedentary regarding, regarding foods? So first of all, um, we all got to get off our butts. So we just got to not be sedentary. You know, that's, that's the first thing. I mean, now just wear a watch that pings you and tells you to get up. <laughs> I, I am redoing my office right now and I'm definitely getting a walking treadmill. I just think we have to be more active and we have to force ourselves to do it. So, you know, and I think this last year people being trapped inside showed it more than, than ever. And I think what we need to do is use activity in the right places like uh, a great fasted workout in the morning. And then, and my caveat to that is if you cannot work out as hard as you could, because you're fasted, then do something light in the morning, 
have your snack and then go for it. Like if you need to have something in the morning in order to get a hard workout in, um, then I'd rather not sacrifice your workout, but you can still do something, some uh, short walk in the morning first, something, some easy yoga, something, something. Um, but these things go hand in hand. I remember there was a study that they did about like right now in the U S what we're 70% overweight or obese. And everyone's pushing the body positivity movement. I'm not a fan of the body positivity movement. I think we should all love ourselves, love our bodies and work to be in our best health ever. And I'm sorry, you cannot be healthy if you're obese. You can't. It's exactly. that I, it's not I, possible. So I'm not, I'm not being mean. It's just the reality of, you know, hormones and cytokines and what happens. And I mean, we saw it with what happened over the last year with people who are obese or a bigger risk. So we are, we are, that we are not being fair to people by telling them misinformation. You have to do what you can to get to your ideal body composition, which is different for everybody, depending on your genetics, your race, et cetera. Um, but let's say there's 70% overweight and obese, 30% of the people are normal weight. Of those 30%, there was an interesting study that came out years ago that said that 50% of those people were tofi, thin outside, fat inside, that they were normal weight, but over fat because they were Hmm. trying to maintain their weight by diet alone. We have to get off of the scale as its own measurement. We, first of all, we need to use the scale as a vital sign and stop looking at it as an emotional, you know, mean girl. The scale is giving you information. If your scale goes up three to five pounds overnight, you ate a food that didn't work for you. You are inflamed. You did not gain three to five pounds. You gained inflammation overnight. You want to get a scale that also gives you body composition. So you can look at your lean body mass versus your fat mass, monitor your total body water and really see what's going on. Because you want to make sure that if you are trying to lose weight, that you're losing fat, not muscle. You're holding on to and building muscles. You're losing fat. Ditto. Like I, I believe we should step on the scale every single day so that just like if you were checking your, you know, someone using a continuous glucose monitor, someone monitoring their sleep, this is just one of those things that you monitor and that you should do your waist. Like a heart rate monitor. Right. Same thing. Like this is just a, like if we start to look at the new vital signs, like our new vital signs, we're all wearing a tracker to look at our sleep and look at our activity level. And then we look at the scale. We got to get the emotion out of that one and do hips and waist measurement so that you can see if something's starting to shift, because if all of a sudden you're starting to gain weight and you're starting to gain weight around your waist, something's happening hormonally to your body. Unless, you know, unless you decided, Hey, the hell with all of it, I'm going to sit down and eat cake all day, but that's not what's happening. You know, when I see that with people, generally their hormones have started to shift. They've gotten a thyroid problem. They've become insulin resistant. That stress has gotten, has knocked them out of whack. They had a toxic, toxic exposure. Something went on that your, their body is trying to tell them. And, um, Yeah. Thank you for for sharing that. I think there's so many golden nuggets in what you're sharing right now, and I think we we couldn't be aligned more. Um, it's exactly, um, and I've I, I read a little bit about your book, and I never read it, and I feel like we have so much so hmm. much teaching in common. It's it's so awesome to see. Um, but I lastly, I, I still want to go to the warrior mom um, because I think talking about the mindset in general is so, so important. Um, give us a little bit about a summary in, on the book and then, um, uh, yeah, we can talk a little bit more specific about it. So the book I never wanted to read <laughs> or write rather, um, it was very interesting. 
uh, when I wrote that book, my, my agent wanted me to write that book because it had helped her. She went through the journey with me and then she had a really challenging uh, journey giving birth to her twins and nearly losing them. And she said, all the things that you told me as you were going through your journey is what helped me get through it. You've got to share it. And what was interesting was, you know, people kept asking me after I went through this situation of nearly losing a child and they kept saying, um, you know, I could never do what you did. And I go, you would totally, you don't, you don't know, you know, you have no idea what you're capable of. And I believe that we are never better than when we're challenged and that we're so much stronger than we think. And if, when it's your child, you'd be amazed at what you can do. But one of the questions I got asked was, well, how did you do it? And I go, I don't know, you know, this was just in me. And then I was doing an interview and someone asked that question. I went, oh, hold on. I had a mentor at the age of 30 and that mentor at the age of 30 I remember she was going to teach me how to be successful in business. And I literally, it's the, I moved in, moved, moved into her house in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and she was going to teach me everything. And so the first thing she did now, I dropped out of doctoral school. I sold my business. I drove from LA to Florida. Okay. I was all in, you want to take the Island. You got to burn all the boats. So I was all in. Exactly. (laughs) And uh, I come into her house you know, unpack, move into the guest room. And she puts rubber bands around my wrist. And she says, every time you have a limiting belief, snap your wrist. And I'm thinking, I have just, what have I done? Like, I cannot believe I just dumped all, you know, dumped my, my doctoral program, did all this stuff. And now this woman is telling me to put rubber bands around my wrist. Like I've got to stop being so impulsive, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, but you know, I was there, so I did it. And here's, what's crazy. Six months She did not train me on business. She trained me on mindset. She trained me that the only limitations are the limitations in your mind. She trained me on how powerful thought is that thoughts can create, that everything's created twice, first in your mind's eye. So you have to believe it to see it. She taught me to manage my environment, to make sure that I was surrounding myself with positive input, right? Trash in, trash out. So I stopped the news. My mom was so concerned. You're not watching the news. I'm like, nope. (laughs) What if something bad happens? I'm like, if it's really important, someone's going to tell me, you know, you you will know for sure. (laughs) Right. I don't need to know. So that all of that training, when Grant got hit and the doctor told us that we had to let him die. And, you know, my son, he's, my son's listening to this, everything and saying, sounds like maybe a 0.25% chance he'd make it. And the doctor says, yes. And you know, my son said, well, we'll take those odds. We like, that's, that's the way we looked at it. It wasn't zero, you know, it's, it's just the way that I thought because she'd so indoctrinated me. And then my kids and my ex-husband with every, that's just how we rolled, you know, was this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to us, to us and the family. And he'll be 110%. Let's go. And that's, that's what we did. And, you know, when I was writing warrior mom, Grant was coming out of a brain injury and super suicidal. One of the things, you know, the doctor told me when he woke up from the coma, it would be ugly. And I thought that they meant it would be ugly for like 10 minutes. He'd be yelling or something. I didn't know that it would be ugly for years. Um, that when people are coming through brain injuries, they can become suicidal. It's really common. And so, I mean, multiple times we had to call the paramedics. He tried to swallow pills. He tried to walk out in front of a car again. I mean, just horrible stuff um, that was going on. And I'm writing this book 
And I'm thinking, I'm writing this book and I have no idea if he's going to make it. But I realized that the book was not about grant and grant making it. The book is about how we show up when things are hard. And, you know, that is something we all have in common. I pray that no one goes through anything that I went through, but I know that we all are going to face challenges. This last year certainly proved it. Mm, We're all going to face challenges and it's how we show up. That's the differentiator, right? And that's the choice. And that's, what's amazing. And you can train for it because mindset's a muscle, right? Exactly. How, like, especially with this experience you had with your son, um, I have a daughter, uh, I, I, I would, you can even imagine how it is, would be um, uh, as a parent uh, dealing with, with something so, um, yeah, yeah, like bad and, and, and yeah, on, don't the imagine. Time, on the same, on the exactly. So, um, no, nope. how, what, what helped you through that? So, um, we talked about mindset, mindset, um, is tied to your health. Obviously, if you have a positive mindset, uh, you are usually pretty healthy, I, I believe. Um, what, what do you, what, what helped you on, on the journey with your son? What helped me on the journey with my son? Here's the number one thing. And this is so counterintuitive, especially for women. I remember standing, it was like 24 hours. I'd had maybe a couple hours of sleep and I'm standing in the pediatric ICU and looking at my son and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, my other son's two hours away in Palm desert. I'm now living in a little like hotel, you know, like one of those long stay hotels. And I am looking at him and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not leaving because, you know, number one cause of death and turns out in kids is brain injuries. And number three cause in death and people is death by doctor death in like, hospitals just from mistakes and stuff. So I'm not going anywhere. The book is coming out. Everything I've done is invested in that. I'm the primary financial support for my family. If this book doesn't go, I will not be able to take care of my son. <laughs> what the heck do I do? Right. I'm like, what do I do? And I'm sitting there and I thought, all right, the only way I'm going to be able to pull this off is if I put my self-care first. And I will tell you that like that for most people is like, well, that's selfish. And I realized like, I can't walk into the pediatric ICU if I have a sniffle. I can't. He had a, he had a tube coming out of his brain. I had to go in with gloves, a mask, a full gown. And I had to be there all day long. I'd get there, you know, between 5.30 and 6 in the morning. I'd leave between 8 and 9 at night. And I was in between. I'd run into their offices and do interviews. I had to be game on, focused, functioning. And so I just decided, you know, I'm going to eat good food. Whole Foods actually was delivering stuff to me. I'm going to run up and down the hospital stairs. I found a gym a quarter mile away. I'm going to get good sleep. I'm going to ask all my friends to help, (laughs) you know, and that's what I did. And Honestly, that is what I preach to people is when you're a caretaker, because we're all going to be a caretaker at some point in our lives. Sometimes we might be caretaking our, our, our parents and kids at the same time. And I think there's a tendency for a caretaker to try to be a martyr and put themselves last. But if you're a caretaker, your self-care is even more important because you got to be able to show up strong. 100%. I have the same, it's, it's funny, like a story with my mom, actually. Um, and I always preach that um, if you don't take care of yourself, first, you can't take care of others and um, big believer. And I think there's nothing selfish on that, because you need to show up 100%. And if you're not uh, taking care of 100%, you can't show up 100%. And I, I totally agree with you. Um, 
I want to know now uh, what you did on self-care. Um, what was your workout like then? And what's your workout now? So my workout then, um, number one was like, whatever you can turn anything into a gym, right? So the hospital stairwell became a gym. That was, that was like my favorite thing. I really listened to my body when it first started to happen. I had so much, I was, I was in that acute stress phase and I just felt like I needed to move, like get let off energy. So like where I normally do a lot of weights and a lot of hit training, I was just like moving, <laughs> you know, yeah. up and down yeah. stairs and walking. When Grant got into a cardiac uh, wheelchair, I was like walking him all over the place. So I did that. I did hit training on the stairs. And then I found a gym close by. And you know what? I moved multiple times every single day. Um, I got to the gym every day, even if it was just 30 minutes. And I always did all the walking and I did the stairs. I made sure that I had a Nutribullet. I brought it to the hospital. As soon as Grant spit his feeding tube out, I was giving him smoothies. He never ate the hospital food. Nice. In fact, One of the first things he said in one of his first words was disgusting, pointing at the hospital food. So I had a big sign up, said no insurer, no crystal light, none of that. Um, so that's how I handled that. But I just ate all my normal healthy stuff. I, I figured I'd had to be a hundred percent. Like there was no margin for error. I prioritized my sleep. And I mean, to be honest, it really didn't change. Like you get good habits in sleep, exercise, eating, You get those habits in when things are easy. So when things get hard, they're already dialed. You don't want to, in the middle of something hard going, oh, you know what? I should start an exercise routine now. <laughs> I already had exactly, it nailed, exactly. right? Everything was nailed then. I just kept going. I didn't, I didn't stop that stuff. I didn't use that as an excuse to not do it. I use it as an excuse. Sometimes that why not, you know, is really the reason exactly. why. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Um, I um, we're coming to an end uh, right now, but I really want you to share where people can find you because I think people need to find you. That's first, and um, they need to read your books. And uh, you're such a uh, wealth of knowledge, and just share it away. All right, jjvirgin.com, and uh, actually, that's got every single thing in there. So it's got my all my books listed, my podcast, all the social. We do a lot of stuff over on Instagram. We're building our YouTube channel back up again right now. So we are super active. I say we, because I do not do this alone. Like this is a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stuff that uh, we're working on getting out there. So there's a village out there helping me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. You have an amazing story. Um, and um, how is your son, by the way? That's what I wanted to ask to uh, before, before we end it. My son is working out and, uh, you know, running, playing tennis. They said he'd never walk. So, you know, he's wow. playing tennis, reading stoic philosophy and, uh, you know, happy here living in Florida with me. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on on the Everyday Fitness with Coach Mark podcast. And um, yeah, I hope we can do this again in the future. My pleasure. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Everyday Fitness with Coach Mark. 
Hopefully you're feeling fired up and motivated to get going. All it takes is just 30 minutes per day. Get your hands on Coach Mark's incredible free workout challenge or join him live for an online workout every single week by going straight to completethechallenge.com. Super easy to remember, completethechallenge.com. Don't forget, the key to results is consistency. Join us for the next episode of Everyday Fitness with me, Coach Mark, every Monday and Thursday.